And now, friends, we turn to the sermon, the message this morning. We have made it to the fourth Sunday of Easter. As I mentioned previously, and I I think I make a point of every year, Easter is an extended season that goes just beyond the single day when we celebrate Jesus' resurrection in those days and those weeks after as we continue celebrating the fact that Jesus is resurrected. And this year, we've been hearing some resurrection stories, and we've been following along with the lectionary, which is this set of scriptures that gives you a different scripture for each week of the year, so your preacher doesn't have to come up with the scripture to be preaching on. And if your preacher happens to be one who might randomly be disappearing in order to attend to a paternity leave, then it's a really great situation for everybody. What that does mean is that we get here on this fourth Sunday of Easter this passage about Jesus and the Good Shepherd. It's no longer a scripture coming from after Jesus is resurrected. It jumps jumps earlier to before that happens. Jesus is talking to his disciples as part of his normal teaching. And it is a traditional passage for this week and is read in some form or another every year in the lectionary. And it's no doubt because it talks about Jesus laying down his life for the sheep in sort of this resurrection-y way. It's also just a really wonderful, comforting passage about Jesus as shepherd and us as sheep. I invite us to explore it a bit this morning and let us open with a word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, what is it that makes a place, a home. Over the past few weeks, Jennifer and I have been more than a bit consumed by trying to get everything ready for our first child, this baby boy who is going to be due and arrive sometime in the next few weeks. And when he's born and when we bring him back to the house for the first time, we want everything to be ready for him. We want it to be clear that we were expecting him, that we have a place for him, that he's home. So we've been setting up the nursery with furniture and decorations to make it all just so. We've been absolutely blessed by all manner of generous gifts, which we've unpackaged and put in various places in the nursery and around the house. We have clothes washed and folded and ready in the dresser drawers. Been reading books about caring for newborns. See, even though he's this little baby is going to spend most of his first day sleeping and will hardly be in a position to judge the aesthetic of the nursery when he's awake, it seems important just the same to make sure that we've created a home for him. And all of this homemaking has me thinking nostalgically about the first home where Jennifer and I ever lived when we were just newly married. And it wasn't a home at first, really. It was just a house and a little one at that. It was sort of this yellow brick, and while it had two bedrooms and one full bath, the rooms were small, and so it felt kind of like living in a dollhouse. We rented the house from the church where I was working at the time, which owned the house, because it was literally in the middle of their parking lot. Behind our backyard in that house was the church building, and our neighbors on either side were flat asphalt lots painted with parking spaces. The church hadn't owned the house for very long, Um, and had long ago built their parking lot around it because the house's previous occupant told uh, told them that he wouldn't sell the house as long as he was alive, and he didn't. And then he died, and they sold the house to the church. 
Now, his children left the furniture that they didn't want in the house, including a bed frame and mattress, which we quickly disposed of while very pointedly not asking for details about just where and how this previous gentleman had passed away. We got mail addressed to him in the entire time we lived in the house, and so as a result, learned all about the AARP benefits that we weren't eligible for and wouldn't be for quite some time. The house itself was quite something. The carpets were this dust blue color that dated them considerably. And every room, all the walls in every room throughout the house were this off-white color that you couldn't find on any paint chip cards, but could surely only be achieved the hard way by painting your walls white and then doing nothing else to them for at least 25 years. So one of the first things that we did was we painted every one of the walls. It was gray in the bedroom and this delightfully sunny yellow in the living room brought a little bit of life into this space, and that yellow didn't conflict with any of our randomly assorted furniture pieces, the piano that we got free from the church, the hand-me-down couch that we got from a church member that creaked concerningly when you reclined and put your feet up, Uh, the TV stand which was left in the house when we moved in, and the very much not flat-screen TV that was just as deep as it was wide and was only $5 at the church's rummage sale. We didn't have much by way of wall decorations, but we hung a few crosses on one wall and a few pictures from our honeymoon on another. We tried cleaning the decades of dust accumulation off of the plastic Venetian blinds and the windows, and when that didn't work, we just replaced them all with equivalently inexpensive blinds from the hardware store. We spent hours outside digging weeds from the front flower beds and putting in mulch and flowers that struggled to stay alive through the summer, no matter how much we watered them. I waged war on the fire ant colony living in our yard and tried in vain to vanquish the cockroaches from the property entirely. We did a lot of work to the house. We have a picture of us on the front stoop when we first moved into the house, and then another when we packed up to leave a few years later to leave what had then become our home. We've been back a few times since, but it's not quite the same. There are new buildings in the area, and while this little yellow brick house is still there, the flowers are long gone from the front, and I'm sure someone has painted the inside a different color. I'd be willing to bet the ants are still around, but that was never my favorite part anyway. It's just not our home anymore, and we can't hold on to it forever. What is it that makes a place a home? Today's scripture has this home-like comfort to it. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says twice, and it evokes the same imagery as that much-beloved 23rd Psalm, which speaks of the heavenly shepherd under whose watchful eyes we want for nothing. It's a familiar biblical metaphor throughout the Psalms and the prophets, which cast God in the role of protector and provider, and us as the herd of, well, slow and sometimes foolish sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says here. And he explains that he's ready to lay down his life in protection of his sheep, of us. The wolves might startle the hired staff into running, but their obligation to the flock is only by nature of their employment, and even a good salary isn't worth losing your life over. But the sheep matter more than that to Jesus, and so there is a home in his care. I am the good shepherd, he says again, and explains that he knows us just as we know him, just as he knows God the Father in heaven. Sheep know their shepherd and know their shepherd's voice. They trust their shepherd to lead them through the tumultuous landscape and find safe haven for them along the way. We may not always know where we're headed, but we put our trust in Jesus who leads us faithfully and is our home 
along the way. This passage welcomes us home in Christ, invites us to move in the furniture and paint the walls and tend to the flower beds out front, and we do so in so many ways. We settle in and we find the places and the practices that bring us home. For some, it's the stained glass windows in a long-beloved sanctuary that invites them to sit and stay for a while. For others, it's a hymn or the hymns whose words have long been a welcome embrace. Maybe it's a beloved prayer or reading scripture in the early morning, light, a particular order to a worship service, the liturgy that surrounds the communion table. In any one or number of ways, we make our, our home in the faith. But families change and grow, and so our home can't always stay the same forever. Tucked into this passage is this reminder that God's family stretches farther than we can see. I have other sheep that don't belong to the sheep pen, Jesus says. And we've always known this, of course. Our faith traditions are built on the principle of evangelism with a healthy emphasis on that final reminder that Jesus gives to his disciples before ascending into heaven. Go, he says to them, go and make disciples of all nations. There are other sheep out there, beloved children of God to be welcomed into the flock. And as Methodists, we might know that our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That there are other sheep is at the core of who we are. And yet it's also a challenge. The principles of group dynamics mean that whenever a group is formed, even if growth is part of its primary identity, the group will nevertheless tend towards stability and work to remain consistent in identity and composition and practice. A group, once formed, naturally tries to stay the same. But evangelism, the idea that there are other sheep out there, works against that desire to stay exactly the same. Christian history has shown how we have tried to evangelize without changing. That ends up as colonization. We evangelize not just the words of Jesus and the gospel message, but also particular clothes to wear and faith traditions to practice. We end up giving so much and placing so many expectations on the things that must stay the same that it prevents us sharing the good news of the gospel in the first place. Jesus says that there are other sheep And he says that those other sheep have heard his voice too. They have a perspective of who God is and how to make their home in Christ. And so welcoming them in is also welcoming their perspective and what they've heard and allowing our home to change a bit as well. And while there's this long and difficult tradition of this colonization practice in evangelism, there's also a long history in the Christian tradition of hospitality, of welcoming in the stranger and the guest exactly as they are, giving them space to be and to live and to find their home. One person who did this and spoke of it particularly well, his name was Benedict, Saint Benedict to many, and he formed a monastic community around this practice. At one point, he said, a monastery is never without guests. I think we could say the same about a church. A church is at its best with guests. And he had a rule for his monasteries. He said, let all guests who arrive be received 
like Christ. For he knew that Christ is in all people and loves all people, and that there are other sheep who have heard God's voice. And so to welcome another is to make space for them and the way that they embody Christ. I read a newspaper column this last week that was posted by a friend on Facebook. It was a follow-up to their column of two weeks previously, a two-part series. They had written about the decline in church attendance, and they had suggested some ways why that might be and received a whole lot of difficult and rather angry feedback about it. And it was a column lamenting that spirit of how we sometimes do not create space for one another. It's a, it was written by a pastor who is also the son of a pastor, and so he wrote about his father and the faith tradition he had received. He said his father was a bit of a wild man of faith, rather Pentecostal and very forward with his beliefs in so many ways. But then he also wrote this. He said that his dad believed what he believed, but he also wanted to know what everyone else believed and why they believed it. And he'd say, hmm, that's interesting, and really mean it. It seemed like a simple thing that just struck me incredibly. To know what we believe, but also want to know what others believe and why they believe it. To create space for others to make themselves at home enough to open up and to rest. In the context of this whole scripture, when Jesus says he lays down his life for the sheep, and in the sense that there are other sheep means that Jesus laid his life down not just for those who are here, but also those who are on the outside. And sometimes that means we might have to stop and discover what's so lovable about other people that Jesus would die for them too. And I think that, in a sense, is the practice of hospitality, of allowing a home to adjust and change enough to make space for the new addition to the family, to find out what's wonderful and lovable and be loved about them. Until one day, there's no one else to add. And it is, as Jesus said, one flock with one shepherd, one family in one place, at home together. May it be so. May the home which we share be forever open to others. May it forever have space for others to come and be at home with us. Friends, welcome home. Thanks be to God. Amen. Invite us now to continue in worship.